All this movement <clears throat> reminds me of the reality that there's a lot of people involved in what's going on up here. It takes a while to get them all back into their seats. That's a good thing. It's a church that's alive. They say a church alive is worth the drive. So, if you've driven to get here this morning, I trust you'll be blessed in your time with us. I just want to add my voice to those that have gone before me in welcoming you here this morning, particularly if you're here for the very first time. Welcome and thank you for coming. It's our privilege and joy to, to have you here as our guests this morning. We have been working through a whole series of, of doctrine, biblical doctrine here over the summer months related to things to come, last things. What is going to happen in the future? And that seems to be a question that everybody is interested in. There are a tremendous amount of uncertainty out there today. There's no question about that. What people once thought was solid and secure is now bankrupt or teetering on the edge of it. One would have never thought just two years ago that there would have been such a tremendous collapse in the American economy and such widespread financial ruin that has come upon so many people that jobs would be so hard to find. One wouldn't have thought just a couple years ago that the world would be as close to the brink of war as it now is. With a number of nation states pursuing weapons of mass destruction and having the ideological commitment to be willing to use them. We live in a world that is loaded with uncertainty. So people are interested in what's going to happen. People are interested in the future. Where are we going? Where, what's going to happen? Well, I'm not up here to try to describe that to you because I don't know. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I do have the Word of God in front of me, and God has given us certain insight into the future, where this world is going. It is not spinning out of control, even though it might look that way. It is moving towards the culmination of God's great plan of the ages. So we've been looking at a number of events on the prophetic calendar. And we arrive this morning at the return of the king. The next great event in this series of seven is the return of the king. When Jesus came the first time, he didn't look so much like a king, at least from the world's point of view. He was humble, lowly. He was outcast and rejected. He was denied and ultimately crucified. The scripture tells us that on the third day he rose from the dead and appeared alive to his disciples and as many as 500 at one time over a period of 40 days. 
And at the end of that 40-day period of time, he gathered together on what's called the Mount of Olives or Olivet. It rises to the east of the city of Jerusalem. He gathered his, his core disciples together there, and he gave them a few final instructions. We're told in the book of Acts in verse 1, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Visibly, bodily, from the Mount of Olives, ascending back to the right hand of the Father where He sits to this day, waiting until the promise is fulfilled that God will put his, make His enemies a footstool under His feet and that He will return in the, in the correct time at the right moment as the returning King to establish His kingdom here on earth. And when He returns, beloved, it will be bodily, it will be visibly, and it will be to the Mount of Olives. What I want to do with you this morning is look at a number of Scriptures that speak about the return of the King. His long-awaited return. And it will be accompanied by three very significant events. And I'm calling those events the ABCs of the Second Coming. The ABCs of the Second Coming. Not because they're necessarily simple, but I thought it would be a convenient way for us to remember them. The ABCs. A, Armageddon. B, belief. C, confinement. The ABCs of the Second Coming. We're going to be looking at, as I said, a number of scriptures, but primarily we're going to be in the book of Zechariah and the book of Revelation. So here's what I'd like to do for you. If you're not really super familiar with your Bible, and so turning back and forth is going to to cause you some delay and perhaps even disrupt your train of thought in the process, just take a moment now and and, uh, take a piece of paper out of your bulletin or something and rip it in half if you have to, and stick one in the book of Zechariah and one in the book of Revelation. And in particular, I want you to go to Zechariah chapter 12. And Revelation chapter 16. So stick a bookmark in Zechariah 12 and Revelation 16 because I'm going to be going back and forth between them and I want you to be able to find your way. Now, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll go to page 948 and you'll find the 12th chapter of the prophet Zechariah. So 948 in a pew Bible, Zechariah chapter 12. Revelation chapter 16 is found on page 1236 in the pew Bible. So 1236 for the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation, Zechariah chapter 12, page 948. Those aren't the only two that I'm going to look at, but I'm going to be back and forth between those two. I love to hear the sound of turning pages. This is a good thing. That means you're engaged, you're paying attention, you're following along, and you're testing me, and you should be testing me. Make sure that what I tell you here is true. 
Test it against the Word of God. Now, the ABCs of the second coming. And understanding these events, beloved, should and will produce change in the way we live. This is not purely an academic exercise. An understanding of what is coming both should and will as you meditate upon the reality of it, it will change the way you live even right now. So are you ready? Are you ready for the ABCs? Letter A, Armageddon. Letter A, Armageddon. And again, for you, I've included in your worship folder a pretty full transcript of the things that I'm going to say this morning as well. And so you'll have that. You can review that again at your own time. You'll notice there as well many, many Scripture cross-references that I'm just not going to have time to look at, but they're there. So here we go. A equals Armageddon. A equals Armageddon. The Old Testament prophets are uniform in their understanding and statement that the world is going to be involved in a final and great conflict. There is going to be a great conflict at the end of time, a great war at the end of time. And that war is going to find the little nation of Israel on one side and all the gathered nations of the world on the other. Israel against the world. The prophets are uniform in telling us this. In that final great conflict, Israel will be on the brink of extinction. She will be overrun by the armies of the world. Moments before her extinction, Christ Himself, her warrior king, will return from heaven to rescue His people and completely defeat all of His enemies. This is what the prophets tell us. The popular name for that final conflict is the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon. I'm sure that most of you have heard that term used before and you've, you've heard it applied to all kinds of scary world scenarios. But biblically, the, arm, arm, the battle of Armageddon is a very narrowly defined time and series of events. The actual word Armageddon itself only appears once in the Bible. It's in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 16. The only place the word Armageddon appears. It literally means the hill country of Megiddo. The hill country of Megiddo. It refers to a geographical area in the nation of Israel. It's a reference to what is known as the Valley of Jezreel. The Valley of Jezreel, which is located in northern Israel, about 10 miles south of Nazareth. And it is a site of numerous Old Testament battles. It is a perfect battlefield. It is a very fertile area. It's actually the breadbasket of the nation of Israel. It is a very fertile plain. It's about 20 miles wide and about 14 miles long. So if, if my reckoning is correct, it's about from here to the 215. And it's about as far south as the 60 freeway. 
So that kind of a landmass is what we're talking about as a, as a broad, flat, fertile plain surrounded by hills. The Valley of Armageddon or the Valley of Jezreel, Armageddon. Now, normally, people talk about it as the battle of Armageddon, and I myself have spoken of it that way. And to do that, it conjures up in people's imaginations the idea of a single, isolated conflict, a battle, like the Battle of the Bulge that lasts for a few weeks and then it's over. But, but technically speaking, in the Scriptures, it's not just a small battle in a small area that lasts for a short period of time. In fact, uh, the translation of that underlying Greek word that's translated in many English editions as battles is, is probably not the best translation, and a better one, I think, would be war or campaign. So it's better understood as the war of Armageddon or the campaign of Armageddon. That is, that it, it covers a wide range of geography and it happens over a long period of time. Armageddon describes this lengthy series of events that make up the final conflict between Christ and all the other kings of the world. For example, other geographical locations mentioned as part of this great war include the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is located east of the city of Jerusalem. It's another area the prophets specifically mention as part of this final conflict. Another area is called the city of Basra, located in Edom, which is now modern-day Jordan. Basra is located or was located about 20 miles southeast of the Dead Sea. So the battle runs as far south, at least as far as Basra, down into the, what's the modern kingdom of Jordan. It, be, it runs as far north as the valley of Jezreel. It runs as far to the east as the valley of Jehoshaphat. But this, the center point of the conflict actually is the city of Jerusalem itself. The city of Jerusalem. The size, the ferocity, and the bloodshed associated with this final conflict is indicated by the Apostle John, who describes the campaign as follows. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters of the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. That is, the blood shed was so intense that the prophet describes it as splashing onto a horse up to the height of four feet, up to the bridle, covering a landmass of 200 miles. That's a large area to be enveloped in this final great conflict. The war will engulf the entire land of Israel and beyond. All right. Turn back into your Old Testament to the prophet Zechariah. And let's listen to how he describes this final conflict. We're going to look at Zechariah chapter 12 first, and then chapter 14. 
Chapter 12 is a, is a general overview. Chapter 14 returns again to the same theme with a little more specific detail. It's also important to understand that the prophet Zechariah is looking not just at the conflict, but at the outcome of the conflict as well. So he moves from the conflict through its, its culmination and to its outcome. Okay, Zechariah chapter 12, beginning verse 2. Behold, pay attention, the prophet would have you say. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. The idea here is that Jerusalem appears to be easy pickings, easy to overrun, to, to take. It's like a, like a stone that appears on the ground that is easy to pick up. But the reality is that once they start to overrun it, as it, once they start to try to pick the stone up, they will realize that the majority of it is below ground level, and in attempting to pick it up, they'll hurt themselves, the prophet says. He's warning and he's saying, the nations of the world will look at the city of Jerusalem. They'll see it as ripe for the picking. They'll go after it. But when as they go after it, they're going to hurt themselves. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified among, uh, above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem." They will gather against Jerusalem. The prophet says earlier in chapter 2, actually, and verse 8, speaking of Jerusalem, and he says, He who touches you, Jerusalem, touches the apple of God's eye. Literally, the pupil. Those who go after Jerusalem poke God in the eye. And God doesn't take kindly to being poked in the eye. And so at first, it will appear they succeed. They begin to overrun the city and the land. But ultimately, they will be shattered. They will be broken by God upon the land. Look over to chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. 
and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against all those nations, as when He fights on a day of battle. And in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azael, that is a a place in the east there. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. The prophet looks forward in time and is given a vision of this final conflict. And he says the city of Jerusalem will be overrun. That the nations will be dividing the spoil there in the midst of the city, congratulating themselves on how successful they have been at picking up this easy stone. Captured, houses, plundered, women, ravished. I read this and I cannot help but think of the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II. How for an extended period of time, Soviet and Nazi armies battled house to house in that city until they had leveled the entire city. The population was horribly suffering under that kind of house to house combat. That's what we're talking about here. city of Jerusalem, the land of Judah, involved in this final great conflict. Well, who's involved specifically? Well, there are actually, as best we can tell from the Scriptures, there is Antichrist, the leader of the revived ten-kingdom European Federation. It will be a ten-state federation arising out of old Europe led by Antichrist. Secondly, a northern federation consisting of Russia and her Islamic allies. Third, a southern federation drawn from North Africa. Fourth, what the Scripture calls the kings of the east. The kings of the east, and I hear that, and I, of course, cannot help but think China. And then finally, the little nation of Israel. The little nation of Israel. How do these events unfold? As best I can tell, this is how the pieces go together. Let me see if I can put them together for you. Prior to the middle point of the seven-year tribulation, the tribulation that comes after the church, after the followers of Jesus Christ have been snatched away in the rapture, while Antichrist himself is involved in the middle of his conquest of the nation of Egypt, he receives word that there is a massive military buildup in the north and the east. This causes him to break off his campaign of conquest in Egypt and to race his armies back to Israel to face the rising threat. Prior to arriving there, God directly and miraculously intervenes and shatters the armies of the Northern Federation of Russia and her Islamic allies. But there, arriving after God has done His work, 
Antichrist uses that opportunity to take credit himself and to establish himself there in Jerusalem and to proclaim himself ruler of the world. Sometime around this point, according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, Satan is permanently cast from heaven. He was originally cast out in the ancient rebellion, but he was allowed access. He has been allowed access. He has access to this day into the throne room of God where he accuses the brethren before the Father. But around this time, he is permanently cast from heaven to the earth. Antichrist as well receives a fatal wound. I don't know if he's assassinated. I'm not sure what happens. But something the text indicates happens in Revelation chapter 13. That he receives what appears to be a fatal wound. Verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Somehow the beast, the Antichrist, receives a wound that either is fatal or appears to be fatal. So either in a fake resurrection or some kind of real resurrection that is satanically falsified, it is to imitate the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Antichrist now himself proclaims himself God, raised from the dead. And the whole world is amazed at this event and they fall at his feet and begin to worship him as God. It's at this time that he sets up the idol of himself, the statue of himself in the Jewish temple and commands the world to bow at his feet. But there are some Jews and Gentiles who refuse to worship the Antichrist and they are ruthlessly persecuted for refusing to receive the mark of the beast. 666. They are denied all ability to buy and sell. As I said, not all the Jews are given into worship of the Antichrist. God specifically calls out and seals 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they go throughout the land and, I believe, beyond preaching the reality that the true Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. And people come to believe in Jesus during this time, but many who believe are martyred as a consequence of their faith. Turn over to Revelation 16 if you're not already there. By this time, late in the tribulation, God is pouring out. He is pouring out His bold judgments upon the earth. Verse 8, And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. 
And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds." And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. The horror, the devastation that is coming upon the earth and, and the inhabitants of the earth at this time, they know it's coming from heaven, they know it's coming from God, but their hearts are so hardened in wickedness and opposition to God that rather than turn and repent in the face of such plague and devastation, instead they turn and shake their fist and blaspheme the name of God. This hardness of heart is what leads them to the gathering for the final conflict. It's at this time that three demons are sent out into all the world to draw to the killing fields the nations of the world. Down to verses 13, 14, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the dragon here is Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that is Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that is his prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. As these demons go out, they perform signs out there in the world to convince people to come, to gather together with Antichrist. They recognize that Jesus is soon to return. They know where He is coming, and so they are gathering together to oppose Him. They believe that none can stand against Antichrist. And so they throw in their lot with Him to stand against Jesus the Christ. God dries up supernaturally the Euphrates rivers that the kings from the east may come to gather to the final battle. Antichrist himself, having moved his capital to the city of Babylon, which is the city that is located in modern-day Iraq, he joins them in this final gathering for the great slaughter. The hour is dark. The forces of evil are gathered. They are overrunning the city of Jerusalem. According to the prophet Zechariah, as we read in verse 14, they are openly plundering the city. They're convinced they have won. They're dividing the spoil among themselves openly on the battlefield. And it's at this moment... It is at this moment that Jesus Christ Himself descends from heaven and His feet touch down upon the Mount of Olives. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, describes this event. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many crowns, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe splashed in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. They have drawn up against him. They have gathered there in the nation of Israel. In the valley of Jezreel, that perfect killing zone. They are mustering their troops. They are gathering their supplies. As fresh armies come in, I think, they, I think that's the area in which they gather. And then they proceed through the land, overrunning the nation of Israel and devastating the capital city of Jerusalem. And Christ descends. Back to Zechariah. Christ descends. When his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, a great earthquake shatters the mountain and it separates north and south, opening up a valley in between. And by the way, this part of the world is one of the most seismically active parts of the world. And this large valley opens. And as it opens, it provides an escape route for the remaining survivors in the city of Jerusalem to flee rather than have to climb the mountain up and down and escape towards the ancient city of Jericho. Now it has been ripped wide open. And like the parting of the Red Sea, they're able to flee from the devastation. Christ at the head of His heavenly army, comprised of both angels and resurrected saints. Not that the resurrected saints do the fighting. It is Christ Himself that does the fighting. Revelation 19 is clear to say. But they are accompanying Him as He Himself, the warrior king, defeats His enemies. He faces them in battle. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 14. And it says, now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. And so also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. 
some kind of great plague if the word of God comes upon these armies. It literally says their flesh begins to rot and fall from their bones. Their eyes disintegrate while in the sockets. Their tongue disintegrates in their mouth. It sounds like a, some kind of nuclear holocaust, but I don't think so, beloved. I think it's because they are now in the presence of the holy God and they cannot stand to be there and they are incinerated in his presence. And it causes a panic to come on them so that this this group of nations that has once been allied against Christ now turns one on the other, lifting up sword against each other, and they begin to have this internecine battle followed by the remnant of Israel that comes along and mops up the survivors. Back to Revelation 19. Verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Once the armies of Antichrist that have been assembled against Jesus have been destroyed, the birds of heaven that have been summoned begin to eat the carnage that is left on the battlefield. And Antichrist and his false prophet are taken and they are cast into the lake of fire where they will be tormented forever and ever and ever. Beloved, God will not tolerate rebellion. He will not tolerate rebellion. Today we look around and the world shakes its fist in the face of God. Show me your God, they say. Yet day by day, wrath is being accumulated is being stored up against this great day of judgment. The world has become so powerful they don't need God anymore, so they think. This growing arrogance will come to the place where they think they can actually do battle against Him and prevail. Oh, the blindness of sin. Oh, the insanity of sin. That man would think that he can mock his Creator and ultimately that he can... That he can challenge his creator to open warfare and defeat him. But such is the corrosive and corrupting nature of sin. It makes us stupid. It makes us willing to do things that are insane. Fallen man is by nature a gambler. He is a gambler. Any of you who have raised children, you know what I'm talking about. You tell them, don't do this. And the first thing they do is see how close they can get. One of our children, when 
growing up had a proclivity to put their hand in the wastebasket. They were told, do not touch the wastebasket. And they were young. They were still in a walker. At first it was, do not touch the wastebasket, and pulled their hand away and moved them away. Then it escalated to, do not touch the wastebasket, and moved them away. Then it escalated to, do not touch the wastebasket, and moved them away. We had the appropriate level of tears and outward sorrow at each confrontation. But you know that little rascal? They, I'm protecting their identity here. <laughs> you ask me afterwards, I'll tell you who it is. They, they rolled their little walker right over next to it, turned and looked directly at Carol. Stuck out their hand and touched the wastebasket. What do you mean, that wastebasket? Kids are gamblers. They're gamblers. How close can I get? God won't really do anything, will He? I mean, look. Look at me. Look how long I've lived. Look at all the stuff I've done. Where is your God? Where is His judgment? I don't think there is a God. I've lived my life just fine to now. There's been no punishment, no consequence. Beloved, is that kind of hardness of heart that continues to build up a callus around us and in the process accumulating the wrath of God against us. Someday it will break forth. And when it breaks forth, He will destroy His enemies who have gathered against Him. Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Speaking there about the first coming of Christ. And how he had humbled himself. Taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. Giving his life a ransom on a cross. That he might die in the place of his people. And Paul says, therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do not be deceived. Listen to me. Do not be deceived. Everyone will bow in the presence of Christ, the King. Everyone will bow. Those who bow now, by faith acknowledging His kingship, are His children. Those who refuse to bow, and there are some here this morning, who have refused to bow in the presence of Christ. When He returns, you will bow. You will fall at His feet and you will profess and proclaim with your mouth that Jesus is God to the glory of God the Father. You will not escape that expression of truth. 
but you will be making it as you yourself are cast into the lake of fire to join the Antichrist and the false prophet. Why do we go into the neighborhoods of this community? We go because time is short. We don't know when Christ is going to return, but we look around and we we see the the events and it appears that the, the timetable is growing short and thus the need to respond is critical and urgent. We come to tell you the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and that your sin can be forgiven. That His death on a cross is sufficient to atone for all of your sin and all the accumulated wrath that you do not need to face God on your own. How can you receive such a gift? The Bible says you receive it by simple, childlike faith. If you will embrace the truth, resting upon it with your whole being, confessing the weakness and the inability of yourself to be right with God and that your need for a Savior and the Savior is Christ, if you will embrace that truth by faith, the Bible tells you you will be saved. Today is the day of salvation, folks. Today is the day. I am so happy you're here. I am thrilled that you're here. Do not leave this place the way you've come in. Do not walk out the door and harden your heart. Do not shake your fist at God one more time. The instruments are going to come up now and prepare themselves to play. As these instruments are playing here in just a minute or two, I'm going to come down front here and stand. If the Spirit of God has been working in you this morning, if you recognize your need for the Savior, it's like a little hand in the small of your back. It's it's pushing on you and saying, do something. Don't walk away. Then I I want you to come while they're playing. I want you to come and I want you to meet me right here. Because I want to show you for sure how you can know Christ. Let me pray. Father God, you are the great and awesome creator of heaven and earth. You are righteous, you are holy, you are just, you are pure. Sin cannot be in your presence and survive. Sinners cannot be in your presence and survive. Their Father, you have made a way of escape through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you right now to draw to yourself those who are here without Christ. Compel them, my Father, to come that they might receive the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. 
not for our glory, but for His alone. Amen.